Brilliant. Um, some of you will know that Rosie and I um, moved house a few months ago, um, and um, you'll know that uh, what an ordeal that is at times and what a joy it is at times. And well, part of that was that um, for a while I had to work out of um, what we'd earmarked as Annabelle's room. Um, now, if you've been to our house, um, and if you've been upstairs and you've seen Annabelle's room, you will know that it's quite a small room. The walls are, are pretty close to each other. Um, and, but you will know that the person who owned it last decorated it to my taste just to a T. It was perfect. We had baby pink walls on two sides. And on the other two sides, just to top it off, it was a bright pink. So we had baby pink and bright pink clashing with one another on either side of the room with these four walls very close together. So you will understand why I have been um, eager to be able to, to kind of move out of there and be able to give Annabelle her room back. And um, so how delighted I have been. And I've told so many of you, anybody who's been willing to listen, um, how I'm going to be getting this garden office. And it arrived two weeks ago and I've moved in and, um, and it's great. So now I just have wood walls everywhere, which need a bit of decorating. But, um, but the bright pink that requires sunglasses to avoid headaches is gone, um, which is, is brilliant. The not-so-good news is that it meant that the day had finally arrived where all of these boxes, which had been nicely packed away, knowing that they were for my office at some point or another, whenever it finally got there, actually had to be unpacked, and all of the paperwork had to be gone through, and everything had to be sorted out. Now, how many of you here um, enjoy sorting through paperwork and having a big clear-out? A few people. I'm surprised how many. I'm definitely not one of them. A few of you actually enjoy going through paperwork. I think most of us probably like the idea and the dream of having a clutter-free home, don't we? We like the idea and the, the dream of everything being sorted. But the reality is that in order to achieve that, so often it just gets moved and hidden away in a cupboard rather than actually facing the pain of having to sort through all of the paperwork. I have to hold my hand up to do that sometimes anyway. But when you do take the time to sort through things, whether it's paperwork or something else, isn't it amazing what it is that you find? And how old some of the things are that are there, how long they've been at the bottom of that pile, kind of going unnoticed. I remember a couple of years ago, we got together as a whole group, and we had a, um, a sort through of um, the donations and the tins and different things for, for the food bank. And so we had a whole group of us um, down there, and a competition kind of developed to see who could find the tin that was the furthest out of date. And um, so hunting through the tins and, and searching for dates, I can't remember the exact date, uh, someone might know, but I think it was something like 98 or something like that, that it had kind of gone out of date back then. And the thing is that while most of the donations that we get for the food bank, they, they come from people kind of buying a few extras when they go shopping, which is great. You, you have those occasions um, where people's hearts are good and they're moving house or they're needing to have a clear out and they think, I know what we can do. We'll just give things to the food bank. It'll be such a blessing to them. And so they kind of just put their arm in the cupboard, sweep it into a bag, drop it into the food bank and say, here you go. This will be, be great for you. What they don't realize is that those tins at the back of the cupboard have never seen the light of day since the millennium. And it's, but if it's not tins in the cupboard, what might it be? Other things that we don't go through. One of the things that I often find is medicine. Um, so often I, we ha, you have medicine and it's sat there and then you just forget about it until the time that you need it. And then you have that moment where you need it. Like, I know we bought that. I know we've got it somewhere. And so you go hunting through and you find the medicine or the cream or the bongella or whatever it is. And then you see the date on the thing and it went out of date years ago. And this thing which you bought with the idea that it would help you and bless you and make you better, if you took it now, it would probably kill you. And it goes on like that. You know, there are these things that we purchase, aren't there? 
uh, whether it's tins of food, medicine, something similar, and we, we purchase them with the best of intentions that they'd be the blessing to us, that they would be good for us. We, we buy the medicine, we believe in the medicine, we understand maybe how the medicine works with the chemicals in our body. But the medicine will do us absolutely no good unless we do what? Unless we take the medicine. And it can be so true of so many different things, can't it? We buy them, we believe in them, we understand them, maybe even we tell other people about how great they are. Whether it's the food, whether it's the medicine, whether it's a product, whatever it is, but it won't do us any good at all until we decide that we're going to use it for ourselves. And this morning we're going to start a new series and we're going to be looking at a letter that was written um, 2,000 years ago by a chap called James. Uh, He was a half-brother of Jesus. And James writes this letter because he recognizes that there were a lot of people around then in the churches that were about who called themselves Christians, who thought that just by having kind of bought the product, just by kind of understanding the product, just by telling other people about the product, just by learning more about the product every week, that they were followers of Jesus. But the reality was that they had never learned how to use the product. And he wrote this letter to say to people, it's good that you know about Jesus. It's, it's good that you understand what it is that he's done. It's good that you believe in Jesus. But now, it's time for you to begin to use this faith. This belief that you're so proud of. It's time for you to begin to apply it and to put it into action. I want you to stop talking about it and telling other people about it and start to live it out. Start to just do it. And so that's what we're, we're calling um, this series. Um, if you can put the picture up, it's up here. Okay, we could go back a couple. That would be great. Um, but they, so we're calling the series Just Do It. Um, hopefully with the Nike branding, it's something that you're familiar with and um, it's easy for you to remember. And, uh, and they're saying will kind of come that following Jesus involves needing to just do it. And that's a huge part of what we, we're celebrating today with baptism, isn't it? with Eloise and Kieran, what it is that they're choosing to do. We're celebrating two people who have known Jesus, who have believed Jesus, who have experienced Jesus in their lives, but are making the decision today that they want to put that belief into action, that they want to follow him, that they want to just do it. And if the night branding isn't catchy enough for you, when I was um, getting ready for today, I came across um, a, a song which had been made. Now, it comes from a speech which was done by um, an actor, Sheila Booth. And um, I wouldn't particularly recommend listening to the whole of the speech, but this little bit which has been taken out for the chorus of the song has been catchy. It's been stuck in my head for the last few days since I came across it. So I thought, what better way of making sure you remember the message of James than leaving you with a catchy, cheesy song which will get you stuck in your head for the next few days. So um, why don't we watch it together? Just do it! Nothing is impossible! Just do it! Yesterday you said tomorrow! Just do it! Don't let your dreams be dreams! The more often you do it, the more like there will be The more like there will be
brilliant. I love that line, the more often you do it, the more light there will be. And I'm sure he had no idea what it was that he was saying and no intention in what he was saying about to do with Jesus. But really, you know, the more often that we just do it, the more often that we put our faith into action, the more light that there will be, the more that we will shine with something of who Jesus is, the more that we will experience not only Jesus at work within our lives, transforming us, but able to impact the lives of the people around us. So that's what this series really is going to be all about. Uh, And I hope that's something that you can get excited about and and wanting to see Jesus at work in your lives in real and practical ways. And uh, that you can come each week ready to be honest with yourself and honest with God. Um, and to, to come with that attitude which says that, you know, as God highlights things in my life, as he brings things to mind, as he prompts me to different things, I want to commit myself to just do it. I want to be someone who just hears about it and forgets the next day. I want to put it into action. I want to put my belief into practice, to be obedient to what it is that God is prompting me to do. So this morning, um, to kick us off, um, before we kind of get really stuck into to the rest of the book of James, I thought it might be a good idea to look at James himself and um, how he lived out this principle. Does he really have a right to say this? Does he live out what it is that he's talking about and what it is that we can learn from him? Uh, if we can pop up to the other picture that was up before, that would be great now. Um, and one of the great things is that as we get to know James, um, we also get to know a, a little bit of an insight into Jesus um, that we, we wouldn't have otherwise, because James was Jesus' half-brother. And, and how many of you know that when you meet somebody's family, it gives you an insight and a different perspective into the person that you already know? And, and so that's kind of what happens with, with James. Now, I remember um, when Rosie and I first kind of uh, got together and we started a, a relationship. We'd, we were three days into kind of um, a relationship, and her parents decided they were going to come and visit up in, in Manchester. And so three days in, I, I got the daunting task of, of meeting the parents. And um, it's something I'm sure many of you have been through, and uh, there's prayer ministry available afterwards for that trauma. <laughs> But, you know, while it's nerve-wracking meeting their parents, while it's nerve-wracking meeting any kind of family, whether it's brothers and sisters, uncles or aunts, it's all you also so often come away from it, don't you, knowing the person that you love better, having an insight into them that you, you wouldn't have otherwise. You know, and as you get to know the people that they grew up around and you begin to realize the impact that they had on their, their lives, and, you know, the fact is that your family generally will know things about you that nobody else does. And sometimes they will take great delight in sharing those things that they know about you that nobody else does. And the embarrassing stories come out about your childhood. You know, and while there's not a lot said about Jesus' early years and um, and things when we read through the Bible and to do with his childhood, do you know who would know all of the painful detail and the embarrassing stories more than anybody else? His family. His family would know every bit which had gone on. Jesus' family was there to see him as a little boy. They were there to see him as he grew up into an adolescent. They were there to to see him as he became a young man working as a carpenter. And if he had any kind of embarrassing stories or faults or things which had had gone on, which he'd done that he wouldn't want anybody else to know about, his family would be the ones to know. And like any family does, they would also be the ones to tell. They knew Jesus before his life as a public figure, before he was famous, before he was well-known. They saw him in the years when no one else did. So I think we get an incredible insight into Jesus when we start to get to know his little brother James. Uh, And this is what James chooses to say about himself right at the start of his letter in James 1, verse 1. He introduces himself and he says, he says, James, 
a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So what do we discover about James in this one verse that's so easy to skip over? We discover that he's in a position to be able to write with authority to a whole network of churches that are scattered around the world. So he's recognized as a leader and he's recognized as a person of authority. But James also tells us something about how he views himself. And he says that he is writing as a servant of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that the position that Jesus has in his life is as Lord, that he rules over him and that he is Jesus' servant. Now that's a pretty big thing to say about your brother, isn't it? When you stop and think about it, it's pretty incredible that James would say that, yeah, yeah, when, when, when we were on earth, we, were, we shared a bunk bed. But now that Jesus is exalted to heaven, he is Lord over me, and I'm his servant. And the statement seems even more incredible when you look back at what we know of James from when Jesus was alive. And we discover that he didn't always see Jesus in this way. In fact, from what we know about Jesus' family and James and his brothers and sisters, at times they thought Jesus was crazy. In Mark 3, verses 20 to 21, early on in Jesus' ministry, this is what we're told about his family. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So just try and picture this for a moment. Jesus has entered into a town. He's gone to this particular house. He's doing some teaching. And there is such a crowd that have gathered. They've squeezed in there to such an extent that they're shoulder to shoulder. And there's not even room for Jesus and his disciples to eat. And then it goes on. Mark goes on and he says this. He says, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is what? What do you think they said about Jesus? They said, he is out of his mind. So early on in Jesus' ministry, after he's left his family, he's left his his job as a carpenter, um, he's, he's, he's gone off to kind of start life out on his own. He's moved out for the first time and embarked on this new stage of life. And, and you know, just like though, when you grow up and you move out of home and you go off to university or you start a job and you get married, whatever it is, and you start this new phase of your life, your, your family might not be there every day, but they're still involved, aren't they? they? They still come and see you. They still take an interest in what it is that you're doing. You're, they still love you and your lives are still connected. And then it's the same with Jesus' family. They're not there every day of his life. Jesus didn't ask any of his brothers to come along and to follow him as a disciple or anything like that. So they're not there every day, but they're still involved in his life. And they have these moments where they come and see him and they come to visit him. And in this encounter, we get an indication of what it is that they thought about what Jesus was doing. They thought that Jesus had lost his mind. That he was going crazy. That he was telling people that he was the savior of the world and that through him, people could be forgiven and have a fresh start and enter into this relationship with God the Father. And that he was so caught up in all of this and so caught up in what he was doing and the way that people were responding that he was putting himself into situations where he couldn't even eat. He was putting himself in situations where essentially he wasn't looking after himself physically and he was becoming a danger to himself. And so James and the rest of Jesus' family, they're pretty worried about him. 
You know, how many of you, if your brother or your sister started saying these kind of things, would be pretty worried about them? You know, if you logged into Facebook later today and your brother's status was saving the world, and then you, you kind of went down to the, the, to the info and you looked under kind of family connections and it said, son of God, you'd be pretty worried, wouldn't you? The next day, maybe you open up a newspaper or you, um, you turn on the news or you log on to the BBC website and, and what splashes up in front of you is a big picture of your brother's face. And he's getting a lot of attention. There's crowds around him. And so you start to scroll down the article to work out what's going on. And you see this quote from him where he's saying, I created the heavens and the earth and now I've come to judge the living and the dead. What would you do? you'd probably get on the phone to mum and dad and say, we need to have a family intervention. We've got to get him home. We've got to get him home and away from people before he gets hurt. This is going to end badly if we don't do something about it. And that's exactly what they did. And it might be that for some of you who are here today, that's the way that you think about people who call themselves Christians who follow Jesus who talk about Jesus. Maybe you hear about how Jesus was God on earth and you think that's crazy and how could you possibly believe it? Maybe you hear about how uh, Jesus was, uh, was promising people that he would, could forgive sins and that he could give people a fresh start and that if they followed him, they'd never die and you think about it and you say, that's just crazy. And that's where James and the rest of Jesus' family were coming from. That was their starting point. They don't start from a place of just accepting Jesus and accepting everything that he said. They start from a place of disbelief. James starts as a skeptic. And so if that's where you are today, then that's okay. But I want you to see how James came from that place to being able to describe himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my hope and my prayer is that for some of you here today, you will begin to make that journey in your thinking and in your heart as well. Sadly, when it comes to James, things get better, uh, so things get worse before they get better. Uh, We find out uh, another run-in between Jesus and his brothers in John 7, verses 2 to 5. And now, this is all happening at a a big Jewish festival when kind of the family gets together. Um, You know, it would be a little bit like us all kind of getting together for Christmas to, to kind of celebrate. And and Jesus has come back to Galilee. He's come back to his home region where he's from. And it's during the time of this festival uh, when all of the family gets together anyway. But but as we we look at the the passage, we find out the reason that he's really gone back there is because in the rest of Judea, the Jewish leaders are searching for him because they want to kill him. And so it's in this context, it's in this setting um, that that uh, Jesus and James uh, kind of have this kind of running with each other. And James and his brothers, they come to Jesus and they say, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do for no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you are doing these things show yourself to the world and then in verse 5 we find out exactly what it is why it is that they're saying this to Jesus as it tells us for even his own brothers did not believe in him and here's what James and his, his brothers were saying they're saying you think you're a big deal then leave our small town and go to the big city. You're telling everyone you're the saviour, that you're a lord, that you're God. 
So go to the big city. Go public. Show everybody else. Preach in Judea, that place where people already want to kill you, and see what happens. Now, how many of you have reached that point with somebody where you've been arguing with them? And you've reached that point where you say, do you know what? If that's what you think and that's what you want to do, just go and do it. I'm I'm, I'm convinced I'm right, I'm convinced you're wrong, but you're not listening to a word, so just go and do it and face the consequences. I think that's the heart of what's going on with Jesus' brothers at this point. And when you start to unpack this, you begin to realize that you're probably not the only one with a family that can be complicated and difficult and unsupportive. Jesus faced it too. And we see that his family were real people with real doubts and issues and who have to go on a real journey to discover who Jesus really is. And so just as James and his brothers tell Jesus to go off into the big wide world, that's exactly what happens. Jesus, he goes out and he preaches and he teaches and he does miracles and he gathers these large crowds around him of people who who listen to him and believe in him. And then he's arrested and he's tried and he's put to death for this one claim that he had the authority to forgive sins, that he was God. The political leaders, the religious leaders, they took offense at Jesus' claims. They didn't like that Jesus was claiming to have more authority than they did. And so they agreed together that this guy needs to die. And when they arrest Jesus and he asks them, why is it that you're going to put me to death? They answer, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That was the reason that Jesus was put to death. It was because he claimed to be God. And if you're here today and you're wrestling with who Jesus is, you can't ignore this. Jesus said he had authority to forgive the wrong things that we've done and to make us right with God. He claimed that he was able to do the things which only God could do. He claimed to be God. His family were resistant to that fact. They'd grown up with him and they found it hard to accept. The religious and the political leaders, they opposed Jesus because of it. And ultimately they murdered him because of it. And who was there when Jesus was beaten and flogged and crucified for his claim to be God? The Bible tells us that at the foot of the cross was his mother, Mary. Can you imagine the horror of that day for her? Here's her firstborn son, her miracle baby that God had given to her. And he's nailed to a cross, murdered, openly, publicly, shamefully, because he claimed to be God. And Mary feared this day would come. That's why she and the family had tried to intervene, why they got together and tried to bring him home and stop him from saying these kinds of things, like we read about in Mark 3. But here he is, murdered, crucified on the cross. And he's wrapped in burial linens and he's put in the tomb. And his family know that he's dead and his mother Mary's devastated. His brothers and sisters are distraught. 
wanted, the day that they feared would come, the day that they tried to protect Jesus from and pull him back from, had come. And they're left trying to make sense of the death of their big brother. Then three days later, unprecedented in the history of the world, vindicating and proving everything that Jesus had ever said or did, Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus conquers death. And when Paul records what happens next in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, it might surprise you. It says, after having appeared to Mary at the tomb and the disciples in the upper room, it says, then he appeared to James. Why James? This guy who'd never believed in him, never supported him. He appeared to James. And can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine the reunion between James and his big brother Jesus? How do you think James must have felt? He opens the door and there's Jesus with nail-scarred hands. How do you think the conversation went? I mean, Jesus says something like, I'm back. I've conquered death. The grave couldn't hold me. I told you I was God. How does James respond? What must he think now? You know, wherever James was at in his thinking on Jesus... I think this is the moment when it all changed. This is the moment where it hits him that Jesus really is God. That everything that he'd ever said was true. That actually Jesus really could forgive him of everything he'd ever done wrong. He really could give him a fresh start. That Jesus really was God. And he makes this decision and he says, I'm in. Once he saw Jesus, once he saw his big brother risen from the dead, he changed. And for James, it wasn't just a a change in what he believed. He didn't just accept something as being a true fact. He was all in. And he put his faith into action. He made the decision to just do it. And as he puts his faith into action, he began to, to teach others what Jesus taught. And he became a key leader in the church. And then when we look at the historical records beyond the Bible, we see that James himself, much like Jesus, was put to death for his faith around 62 A.D. Isn't that incredible when he was his little brother, when he grew up with him, when anybody and everybody had every reason to doubt, to be skeptical, to dismiss the claims. And yet he reaches that point where he moves from being a skeptic, from moves from being Jesus' doubting little brother to being a servant, to being Jesus' bold little brother who is so convinced in the truth of it all that he is willing to die for that truth that he won't give up even when things get difficult. So this morning, wherever you're at in your thinking about Jesus, wherever you're at in your faith, my heart is that you would have an encounter with the risen Jesus like James did. An encounter that leads to change. An encounter that brings you to the place where you say, Jesus is God. He died so that I could be forgiven. He rose and he conquered death so that I could have new life. He is exalted in heaven and now he is my Lord, my God, and I am his servant. 
And when you have that encounter, and when you, then you've got, you, you've got a choice to make. Just like the guys getting baptized today. A choice to say, I don't just accept something as true, but I want to put my belief in Jesus into action. A choice to say, I'm going to put my belief, my faith into action. I'm going to just do it. And it might be for you today that that's about recognizing that there are things that God has been calling you to do, things that he's been prompting you to do, changes that he's been prompting you to make, and you've kept putting it off and saying, it's all right, I'll do it tomorrow. And I want to encourage you to stop putting it off and just do it. Like James did to put your faith into action. Or it might be that you're here today and you're not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you don't know Jesus for yourself. But as I've been talking, you've been wrestling internally with what you really think about who Jesus is. And what that really means for your life. And if that's the case, then I want to encourage you to cross the line of faith. Just as James and his family did. As they crossed from being skeptical to being servants. You know, as they went from simply knowing about Jesus to having a full-on commitment to Jesus as their God, as their King, as their Savior. They recognized that despite all of their doubts, all of their struggles, despite all of their skepticism, they needed Jesus. They needed to be forgiven by him for the wrong things that they'd done. They needed to put their trust in him for a new life and relationship with God, to have a hope for the future. And at some point, they had to make the decision to put their doubts and their skepticism aside and just do it. And this morning, I want you to invite you, not just to hear about and to admire Jesus' family, but to join them and to do the same. To put your trust in him. To stop doubting and holding back and just do it.